Let's take our Bibles now and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm looking forward to these next three messages on this great passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it was in 1734 that uh, the great um, American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, preached a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 that uh, shook up his whole community and radically changed uh, many, many people at that time. Some historians look back at that series of sermons as being the beginning, if not, if not the, 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 the main sermon, perhaps, which we know as the center of the hands of the angry God. But as a prelude to that, uh, to the Great Awakening, was this series of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. The Great Awakening was the, perhaps the greatest movement of God's Spirit in America and throughout its, all, throughout its whole history. And so the Lord used this, this uh, section of Scripture, as He has often used it, in the lives of multitudes of people, multitudes of God's people throughout the ages. Uh, what a wonderful passage it is. As we begin our study this morning, uh, we're looking at uh, it, this passage of love in its context. The context of the subject of love here is not marital love. I know we sing this or read these Scriptures often at weddings. And a matter of fact, a lot of you probably identify uh, this section of scripture with with a wedding. Uh, and it's fine. It's good to use it at that particular point. But that's not the main context of this. Nor is it uh, an all-encompassing description of love. Uh, matter of fact, Paul never actually defines love here. He describes it, but he never actually defines it per se. But rather, this is, uh, is talk to, talking about in the context of a local church. As we've been marching our way through 1 Corinthians, we've seen so many uh, issues, so many sins, so many problems in this church. And as we look at these 15 descriptions in the next couple of weeks concerning love, we'll, we'll identify that every one of them points back to some issue, some need in this local assembly. And so that is true of the church at Corinth. It's also true of us. Every one of these descriptions will hit home with us as we look at them together. Now here, right here is an important point. Uh, many, if we were living in this time, or maybe using this scripture for this period of time we live in now, would say, look at this church, I don't want to be part of a church like this, look at all of its problems, look at all of its sins, look at, look at all of its divisions, I, I, I think I'll stay home, I think I'll have my own church at home, I'll, I'll do my own thing, I'll just wait, move away from the local church. But after all, everybody over there is just, just a bunch of, wait for it, Hypocrites, right? Isn't that what everybody says? And if there was a bunch of hypocrites in the New Testament, these are them. And yet Paul never recognizes them or advises them to move away from this church or to leave it behind. He calls for them to, to make a change, a spiritual change wrapped around this issue of love. As we think about that, if we were to choose our own church services, our own church congregations, we would probably choose people just like us, people we like, people we, of our social stratus, or, who have the same politics, the same opinions, same personalities that we do. And we would all gather together in our little cloister of similar, similarity. And yet if someone has said God has not called together a, a segregation, he's called together a congregation. And in most local churches, there are many people from many backgrounds, many ideas, many opinions about many things who come together, and as they come together, they come together wrapped around Jesus Christ, not about their opinions or their politics or whatever. Our commonality is Christ, and we come together to worship in that way. And think about that as a witness. 
if we were all in agreement on everything, we're just absolutely alike in all areas of life, uh, then that wouldn't be much of a testimony to the world. But when a group of people can come together and love each other and be in harmony with each other, even when they disagree, that speaks to the world because there's no other organization like that, folks, where people can differ on on some very important areas and yet be in love with one another because we're in love with Jesus Christ. And so we speak to the world as we show and demonstrate love to one another. With all that being said, as the Lord puts up, puts together the congregation uh, as he chooses, as he put together this first Corinthians congregation, uh, here we, we look at love. He wants to move on to love. And he's going to talk to us about two aspects of love in this passage. He's going to start with a contrast. He wants to contrast love with other things. So let's read verses 1 to 3 once again. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, then I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender, surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Uh, we need to take a moment to define love before we look at these descriptions. Uh, in the English, we are uh, kind of handicapped. We use the word love for everything. You know, we, we love our dog. We love our cat, maybe. We love our, we, we love our potato chips. We love our church. We love our family. We love God. We love everything. We use the same word. It's hard to distinguish our, that kind of love, isn't it? In the, the Greeks had at least five different words that, they, that could be translated love. Three of them are found in the New Testament. Uh, one was eros, and it's never translated as far as I know love, but the word is where we get our word erotic, and it speaks of, of making love. Uh, this would be uh, how that word would be used in our, in our world today, making love, which is very different than having love sometimes. The second word is phileo, and that's more common in Scripture. We find that quite often. Uh, the distinction between phileo and agape comes in the area of perhaps uh, right here, where phileo kind of means a fondness, a likeness. We like people. We, en- we enjoy them. Uh, we, most of us know Philadelphia is named uh, as a city of brotherly love based upon this word. The, whether they're brotherly love anymore or not, I don't know, but that's what the city means, the name means. Then there's agape love, which is our word here. It's the word for self-sacrificing love. It's a kind of love that we, we give to others self-sacrificially. It's not necessarily an emotion. It can be an emotional, but it doesn't have to be. It's a choice. It's a, it's a, we're, we're making our choice. It's an act of the will in which we are choosing to show love to one another. Now, last week, or a couple of weeks ago, I gave this definition for love. That is, is, love is an enormous inconvenience for the good of someone else. An enormous inconvenience for the good of someone else. Now, some people like that definition. Others didn't. Uh, it's not an all-encompassing definition of love. But there's some certain facets of this that fit real well, right? Think about for just a moment of, of having a newborn baby. We have several babies that have come along lately and are coming along. Uh, you have that newborn baby, and of course that baby has no love except for itself. It doesn't care how tired you are or, or how hungry you are or how discouraged you are about life or anything else. It only cares about itself. And so every night at 3 o'clock or whatever, it wakes up and cries, and it doesn't care about you. Okay, that's an enormous inconvenience. Why people have children 
is anybody's guess, I guess, you know. It's an enormous inconvenience. And yet we get up and we take care of that child. We love that child because of, we love it, right? And we take care of that child. As, as children grow up, we are going to have a lot of enormous inconveniences. Uh, children are going to make a real difference in your life. You'll never be the same once you have a child. And for the next 18 or 20 or 50 years, depending, uh, you're going to be raising that child, and there's going to be a lot of ups and lots of downs and a lot of inconveniences for every aspect of your life, but you do it because of love. Ministry is the same way. If you're going to minister for Christ, there's going to be a lot of inconveniences. It's going to impact your finances. It's going to impact your schedule. It's going to impact your life, your social life. Everything about you is going to be impacted because you want to minister for Christ. It may be inconvenient, but we do it because of love. And so love is, in that sense, uh, the, uh, the enormous inconvenience for the good of someone else. Talk about that at your small group today. You may or may not like that. I don't care, but there it is. Agape love that we find here is the love that is commanded of husbands for wives in Ephesians chapter 5. That's the love that's commanded. It's the agape love that Paul describes here. When we come off of chapter 12, uh, in verse 31, after he's talked about gifts and the the gifts the Lord has given us and the uh, misuse of some of the gifts and so forth, as he ends up that section, he's not depreciating gifts. He would say gifts are very important. Gifts are necessary for the body of Christ. The Lord has given you spiritual gifts to serve him, to serve others, to edify others, build them up. But then at the very end of chapter 12, he says, but I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you something even greater than the greatest of the spiritual gifts. And then he moves immediately into this issue of love. And that's where we are at this point. Now he begins to contrast love with, uh, with other things. And he starts off by talking about tongues. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So we start with tongues. The word tongues means languages here. Just simple languages. Uh, In this context, because this church is so enamored with speaking in tongues, as we'll see in chapter 14, most likely he had at least some connection with speaking in tongues here. If you're going to speak in tongues, he said, that's okay. You're going to speak in languages you don't know. We'll talk about the purpose of tongues later. But uh, if you're going to do that, but you don't have love... It's just a lot of hot air, just a lot of noise. In this passage here, it speaks of tongues of men and of angels, and that term angels causes a lot of people to pause and say, well, what is he talking about? Do angels have a heavenly language? Do angels speak a language up in heaven that is different from everybody else's language here on earth? Is there a a heavenly language that we can learn or that we'll hear later on? And uh, my answer to that is no for a couple of reasons. First of all, remember, angels are spirits. Uh, they're, they're spirits. They don't have bodies. That means they don't have tongues. That means they don't have mouths. That means they don't have voice boxes. They don't speak like you and I because they don't need to. They're spirits. They communicate in heaven without any question, but not as we communicate because they're spirits. They're not physical beings. Secondly, when angels show up in Scripture, uh, they always take on a physical form. That is not their normal form. They've taken on the form of a man or a form of a, of a, a, what we would, a seraphim or a cherubim, those type of things. 
and we see those all throughout scripture but they always take on those temporary forms for uh, for our convenience at that particular time and as they do so they speak most often when we find angels showing up in scripture they say something but they always say something in the language of humans they always speak our language when Isaiah saw the seraphim in, in Isaiah chapter 6 they were crying out in in a language Isaiah understood holy 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 he understood that language throughout the book of Revelation where, the, where we have angelic beings speaking all the time it's always in the language that that John understood now we understand it's a human language so I don't think he's saying that there are, there are angelic languages uh, out there anywhere that in heaven or on earth I think what he is saying is this when angels speak they speak perfectly they never stutter, they never mispronounce, uh, they never have a wrong verb tense, uh, they never add things that aren't there or take things away. Their press, their press secretary doesn't show up the next day to tell us what they really meant by what that they had said. They don't do things like that. Uh, when angels speak, it is with perfect diction. It's with perfect language. Uh, there's no stuttering among angels, it's perfect. And so if you could speak like that, and no one can, but if you could, and yet you do not have love, he says here that you are like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Let's start with a gong. A gong is not a musical instrument. It's a gong. A gong is a gong. All right? You've all seen, or if you haven't, look it up. If you're too young to know, look up the gong show. That is not a musical instrument. That's something that makes a loud, awful noise. Cymbals, well, cymbals have a place in a band or an orchestra sometimes, but not for the whole day. I mean, once or, once or twice a concert's good enough, right? Uh, some of you have bought those, those little stuffed monkeys that are battery-operated that clang their little, little cymbals together. Really, really cute for 30 seconds, right? Then you unplug it and throw it in trash or take it out to the garage sale because they're obnoxious. Now, kids can listen to that for hours on end, right? But you've got to get rid of those things or they'll drive you nuts. Clanging cymbals are not musically, musically uh, pleasant at all. They're just noises. On top of that, the, um, in one commentary I'm using that looks at the culture of the time, says that on the streets of Corinth at this time were hundreds of artisans. Uh, many of them were brass workers. And they were, they were hammering on their brass and different metals all day long right out in the streets. And it was so loud that you couldn't even hear yourself talk. And so the Corinthians had a connection with that, with a clanging cymbal. They, they knew what that sounded like. And they knew it was, it was unpleasant and it was not good communication. And so what he's saying here, look, if you could speak as angels speak perfectly, absolutely perfectly, but you do not love, then you are like those noisy gongs and cymbals. Secondly, there's prophecy. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. The gift of prophecy is the gift of being able to speak inspired, inspired speech. It's a prophet spoke for God. He was inspired by God. He spoke God's words. If you have the gift of prophecy, or just prophecy period here, but you do not have love, you've wasted your breath. Then he moves on to supernatural knowledge. As he says here, if you have if you know all mysteries and all knowledge, mysteries are secrets. And so if you know all the secrets of the universe, if you know everything there is to know in heaven and on earth, 
you know all those things, uh, and yet you have love, you are as nothing. Um, think for a moment of someone who has all knowledge but no love, and we have a perfect technology example of that today. It's called Siri. Right? And some of you have a Lexus or something, but here, here is the perfect example. Uh, I have on my iPhone Siri, and I ask Siri questions. I say, Siri, what, when was Abraham Lincoln born? She knows. I, I say, Siri, uh, what's the address of a local hospital? And she knows. I say, Siri, where is the no- nearest White Castle? And she knows. <laughs> she knows all things, just about. I've asked Siri questions this morning several times about different things. And Siri had the answer for me. She has all this vast universe of knowledge like no genius on earth has. What? You, you can talk to Siri. There's some people that, that talk to Siri and have a conversation. Siri, tell me a story. She'll tell you a story. Tell me a joke. She'll tell you a joke. Uh, and I've heard from some people that if you're, if you're rude to Siri, Siri talks back and says, stop being rude. So try that at home. Uh, I, don't, I haven't done that yet, but I, I've heard that. So here is, a, here is a, a, a robot, more or less, that is knowledgeable of all things. But Siri doesn't love you. Siri is not gonna, doesn't care if you have a hard time. Siri doesn't care if you're going through grief. Siri doesn't care if you have a great joy. Siri simply does not care. But she has all knowledge. If you were as smart as Siri and had all that knowledge, but you did not have love, it's a waste of time. And the next one is faith. He says here, if you have all faith, so as remove mountains. Every Christian should have faith. That's part of our DNA, right? We're saved by faith, or through faith. We're saved on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary and the resurrected tomb when he came forth for us and lives for us. We're saved on, that's the gospel message. We receive that message not by good works or becoming better or merit, being more merit, meritorious. We're saved when we accept his offer of forgiveness based on the cross of Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saved on that basis and we receive it purely and totally by faith alone. And so all Christians are invested in faith. Faith is part of who we are. Faith is the DNA of our faith. But he's talking here about a supernatural kind of faith that could remove mountains or move mountains. Now, this is a supernatural kind of thing, but if you don't have love and you can do that, then you're nothing. Then he said, goes to sacrifice in verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This was a little more ticklish because if, if agape love means a self-sacrificing love, Verse 3 seems to imply this is what happens when we love somebody. We sacrifice for them. And although that's true, I think what he's saying here, look, it is possible to even give, do something sacrificially and yet do it for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives. In the second century, one of the early church fathers said this, both at this present time and in the persecution of Diocletian, there were Christians who, oppressed by debt, by misery, and sometimes even by a sense of guilt, thrust themselves into the glory and the imagined redemptiveness of the baptism of blood. And what he meant by that is this. Some Christians saw that the best way out of a miserable life was to be a martyr. 
So they put themselves in a situation where they would be martyred for the cause of Christ, but the real motive was to get out of misery that they had brought upon themselves or others were bringing upon them. And so their motive was not pure, even though their actions seemed to be. Now I want you to notice Paul's conclusion with all this. In all three of these he says this, uh, whether, whether you have supernatural, spiritual, or practical actions, if it's not done in love, it can be described in three ways. Notice the three ways. As a big, senseless noise. A lot of hot air. As nothing. A big zero. As profiting nothing, your life has no accomplishments. It's amazing how many people who are living a life and, and, and they don't love others, they lack love for others and don't understand why their life is an empty shell. And Alfred Lord's Tennyson novel concerning King Arthur, most of you know about that book or the movies. In the, in the book, uh, he goes off to war. While he's gone, his wife, Guinevere, gets involved with uh, Sir Lancelot. He comes home, finds out, divorces her, and banishes her to a convent where she would live the rest of her life. At the end of her, uh, of her life, as he found out she was ill and about to die, he goes to the convent. And there he says to her at the end of his long, beautiful speech, he says, Lo, I forgive thee even as eternal God forgives. And then he walks out of the room and leaves her behind. What kind of love is that? You know? Love leaves no one in the convents of despair. Love, love doesn't talk good. Love acts in the lives of people. And so he had this great flowery speech, but he didn't have real love for his wife. Or he'd taken her home. He'd addressed her up. He brought her into a place of comfort. He would have truly have forgiven her, but he did not. Now we move on to verses 4 to 8, and we begin to look at love described. There's a contrast. He's got our attention, doesn't he? I mean, he ought to have our attention. Who wants to be a nobody? Nobody wants to be a nobody. Nobody wants to waste their lives. Nobody wants to be an empty windbag. Uh, yet God says that no matter what you do with your life, if you lack love, uh, you are a nobody, and your life is a waste. You will come to the end of your life. What a sad thing to think. You'll come to the end of your life and you'll look back on all you've done over the last 60, 70, 80, 90 years and you will realize that your life is nothing but an empty shell. Who wants to do that? I trust nobody. And so Paul has our attention here. Uh, He wants us to know that uh, if we want to have a life that is of value, a life that honors God, a life that, that does something worth doing, then we're going to have to have love at the very heart of it. And so he has our attention. What we want to know then is what does love look like? If all that's true, what does love look like? Does love look like some passive individual who never says anything to anybody, just sits around and smiles all the time, makes sure there's no conflict, never confronts? If so, Jesus wasn't very loving, was he? Jesus often confronted with truth. Jesus often called out the hypocrites. Jesus took stands on things that ultimately cost his life. Yet he was the most loving person who's ever walked the face of the earth. So love must be something more than that. And so Paul begins to describe love. He doesn't define it per se, but he gives us 15 descriptions of love. We'll look at five this morning and the next 10 next time. But let's take a look first of all at patience. Love is patient. He could have left that one out, right folks? I mean... (laughs) 
That, that, he knows how to hurt a guy right there. Love is patient. That's as far as I want to go. I want to go back to bed. Love is, love is patient. The Greek word for patient here is made up of two words. One is macro, which means far away. And the other is thumos, which means anger. And so the word means to put anger far away. That's what patience means. There's another Greek word sometimes translated patient. That's found in verse 7, actually. It's a word for endures. But this one is for is patience that usually has to do with people. Love, then, is not quick to anger. Patience is not quick to anger. Patience is not quick to frustration. It does not seek retaliation. It doesn't want to get even. Do you allow people around you to fail? Uh, to, know, to, to know that you can mess up and still be loved is one of the sweetest things on earth because we've all messed up. But to think that if we mess up, we'll lose the love of certain people, that's a painful thing, isn't it? And so love is of a nature that it doesn't give up. It is patient, especially with people. When someone gossips about you, when someone lets you down and doesn't show up when they're supposed to, when someone makes bad choices that affect you, what's your reaction to that? Do you want to get even? Or do you want to have patience with them? I want you to notice we go through these descriptions. Here's something very important. Every one of these descriptions, every one is the exact opposite of our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is impatience to get frustrated with people that do not toe the line for us. Everyone's opposite of our natural inclination. So when someone hurts you, what's your natural inclination? To hurt them back? Probably. But love is patient. And love can wait. Love is in no hurry. Why? Because love sees beyond today, and it sees the potential of the future, and it sees the benefit of loving others for the, for the long haul. Once again, going back to kids, having children, think about it for a moment. The Lord has so designed families so that you have a child, and you are going to be raising that child for the next 18 years or so. That's a long time, right? Other animals in God's world don't do that. You know, cats have a litter. A few months later, they get rid of those kitties and have another one. Birds get, get literally kick their, their babies out of the nest after a few weeks and start all over another season. Most animals have a short period of raising their young, but not humans. We're in for two decades of raising our children and so forth. There'll be lots of ups, lots of downs, Lots of struggles at times. But with patience, we see not what is happening necessarily at this moment, but what God has, in plan, has planned for the future. And impatience, a loving patience, enables us to endure things that we wouldn't ordinarily endure very well because we see God at work and we're working to do what God wants us to do. And so love is patient. Love is also kind. Love does not take... Uh, not only takes the injury, but it shows a positive grace in that injury. This is the only time in the New Testament where this particular word shows up. 
Uh, and remember, the, the Corinthians weren't very kind, were they? They had a lot of uh, anger towards one another. They were suing one another. They were mistreating one another. They had divisions all over the place. And so they weren't very kind and weren't very patient. So Paul calls, tells them love is kind. The word kind here means useful. It means beneficial. Therefore, a kind person is useful to others. It's not talking about ourselves here. Useful to others. This is active love. It's one thing to talk about love. It's another thing to actually do love for the benefit of other people. Uh, you have heard this little quote before. I looked it up with Siri this morning. Make sure I had the right person, and I found out that all sorts of people claim this quote. But it's a good quote. It's this, I shall pass through this world but once. Any good thing, therefore, that I can do, or any kindness that I can show to any human being, let me do it now. Let me not defer or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. That's a pretty good quote. You're not going to pass this way again. The Lord has given the opportunity right now to be kind and useful to others. Kindness. This week, let me give you a takeaway. This week, look for somebody to be kind to. It might be somebody that hasn't been kind to you. Uh, and so if you have a lot of people that come to you this week in kindness, maybe that's the reason you haven't been very kind. I don't know. But look for somebody this week to be kind to, to, sh- to go out of your way to show special usefulness to somebody in your world. Don't be so self-absorbed and wrapped in yourself. Look for somebody to be kind to. Third, love is not jealous. At this point, Paul begins to give a bunch of negatives, eight different negatives that he describes here. Love is not eight different things. Sometimes the best way to understand something is to understand what it's not. And so he gives us eight different negative descriptions of love. And the first one is that love is not jealous. Uh, We find the church very jealous, very envious. They were, again, suing one another. They were proud. Uh, they, they wanted to be the top dog in the church, and somebody got in their way. They ran over them. This was a, a natural inclination. This is the kind of thing they were doing. And so they lacked love, and they were a jealous people. Uh, and we, we struggle with that, don't we? Let's be honest. If somebody else can do something better than you, um, and you want to be able to do what they do, it's easy to become jealous. Jealous is not just wishing you could sing, for example, or something. Jealousy is the idea of not only wishing you could do what they do, but having resentment because they can do it better than you. And that becomes difficult, the most difficult, when it's in an area of your own life or expertise. When someone gets an honor you think you deserve. When somebody gets a promotion at work that you think should have been yours. When someone has an ability that surpasses yours. uh, It's easy for us to get jealous and resentful of such people. The opposite of jealousy is generosity. It is wishing the best for them. It is looking at their lives and saying, I I wish them well. I'm so glad they had that award. I'm so glad they had that promotion. I'm so glad they have the ability to minister for God in that particular way. I'm so glad for their, their personalities, for all the things maybe I don't have, but I'm so happy and joyful for them for what the Lord has given them. And that is not jealous. And then, they, and then love doesn't brag. The word here for brag is the idea in verse 4 
of sounding our own praise. A braggart wants to let everybody know what they do. They, they, they might do a very good and kind thing, but they want everybody to know it. You know, could you put that in the bulletin? I, I went to visit somebody at a nursing home this week. Could you put that in the bulletin? Now, I've never had anybody do that. I just made that up. But, but you want people to know how good you are. You want people to know that you are, are, are a loving person. You're a good person. You do things for other person. It's a braggart type of thing. A grand scroggy, a pastor from the past, said this. I like this. Boasting is always an advertisement of poverty. Boasting is an advertisement of poverty. When I boast, and I'm telling the word, I, I'm, I'm a person of, I'm a poor person inside. I need the accolades of other people to boost me up. Spiritually, I'm in poverty. Someone has translated this particular little phrase as love puts on no parade. Love doesn't show off. It doesn't seek to win the applause of other people. But whenever we do, uh, we do not for self-seeking, but for the good of other people. For example, if you have a musical talent, why do you want to have that talent? Why do you want to develop that talent? Why do you want to get better at that? Uh, so others will say, my, how, what a wonderful singer they are. You know, you sing like a bird. Uh, I sing like a bird, a starling, you know. Um, that's not what most people want. But if you had an ability, why would you want people to know about that? Why would you want to get better at that? So people can congratulate you and say how wonderful you are, are for the good of other people and for the glory of God. That's the idea of bragging here. There was a guy at one time in our church who uh, was a quite an accomplished guitar player. And uh, he wanted to play up front. But as time went on, it became obvious he wasn't walking with God. He was living in sin, and uh, he had moved on from our church and had gone to other churches that accepted him to come up front and do their thing, but he was still living in sin. And I came across him one day, and I was talking to him about that, and I said, why is it that you want to be up front at a church playing your guitar, being in a worship band or whatever? Why do you want to do that? He said, and he was very honest with me, unusually honest. He, he said, it's not because I love the Lord but because I love music. What a, what a thing, huh? He wanted to be seen by others as a great musician, even in a church where he didn't care for the Lord or the Lord's people. That's an extreme example, I trust, for, for most of us. But uh, it's living for our own glory, bragging on ourselves. And then that leads straight into the next one. Love is not arrogant. That's the other side of the coin of the last one. Bragging is the outward display of a proud heart. Uh, such pride may demonstrate itself in bragging as it does here. But let me suggest this too, folks. is just as prideful to hold back and refuse to be involved in, in ministry and the lives of other people because you don't want criticism. You don't want people to see you. You, you, you want to you stay in your own little shell. That's just as much pride as a person up front who's bragging on themselves. Either way, you're self-absorbed. Either way, it's all about you. The Lord has not placed you in the body of Christ and gifted you so that you stay in your own little, little cloister. He's called you to minister to the edification of God's people according to the abilities and the personalities and so forth that you have. Yes, but he's called all of us. 
to do this. And therefore, to hold back because you're embarrassed or supposedly shy is not any, any less pride than a braggart and so forth. Humility is the opposite of, of pride. Um, here's a good definition, I think, of humility. Humility is the grace to be all you can be and let someone else get the glory. Grace is, is, is humility is the grace to be all you can be and let somebody else get the glory. There's not a lot of people that humble, but that's what God has called us to do. God loves the humble. Love is not love until it's given away. And so he's describing that kind of life that you and I should have as lovers. All of us know Valentine's Day. Um, the legend of, of St. Valentine is, of course, muddled in time. But the story goes that in the third century, he was a pagan priest in Rome. He wasn't a Christian. But he started looking around at how Christians were being persecuted and, uh, and thrown into prison and so forth, and he reached out to try to help them. When he did that, he himself was thrown into prison. And in prison, he became a Christian, according to the legend. But while he was in there, eventually they put him to death. They beat him to death in prison on February 14, uh, A.D. 270. And that's where we get our Valentine's Day. While in prison, he kept smuggling out notes to people that he cared for. The little notes were just tiny little notes. They would say, I love you. I'll remember your Valentine. Today we made that into a hallmark holiday, and it means very little to most people. But think about the sentiment of that. Here's a man who loved enough to put his own life on the line, and while he was in prison, undergoing all sorts of struggles and troubles, he reached out to other people out there to let them know he loved them. Now, I think that's a good sentiment. You and I have our problems and our struggles and our stuff, and yet God has called us to self-sacrificially give love to others out there. And this passage speaks of that more than any other passage, perhaps, in Scripture. Well, join me in prayer as we close our time together. Father, we thank you now for, for this passage of Scripture on love, what it means to us, what it should mean to us, how it reshapes our thinking, how it runs contrary to our natural inclinations. And Lord, I'm just so thankful today that, uh, that we can make progress at least toward these kind of things that you have called us to be. Father, I pray for the people here today. Some do not know you as Savior. I pray for them. pray they recognize the need for Christ. pray for all of us, Lord, as we consider the message of this passage that we'll seek to be the kind of people that you have called us to be, the kind of people who are patient and kind, who are not jealous and do not brag and are not arrogant. May that be the nature of ourselves before you through the power of your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.